0: Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve.
1: Okay, I'm Joe. I'm still a sexaholic. Nothing's changed in the last minute. Uh, so I guess I'll start with, uh, as you said, the about five minutes of qualification. Um, I, uh, I guess my primary forms of acting out are pornography and masturbation. Although at uh, some points in my career, uh, my acting out career, I also did adult bookstores, um, strip clubs, and um, and other forms of acting out uh, involving trying to find lust, uh, pornography wherever I could. Um, I uh, at the point that I came into the program, I was at the end of my rope. Uh, I had uh, destroyed my family, uh, and I was sinking my career and it was all due to just this unending uh ability you know just inability to control and manage my lust uh i you know was so sick and tired of living the double life of pretending to be one thing and to be you know um pretending to be this you know great righteous guy who uh you know, I was very active in religious communities, but at the same time, used to spend hours and hours on pornography and masturbation, uh, hiding it from my family. Uh, you know, I was supposed to be working, in, and then I would sit and look at pornography instead. And so, um, you know, I, I, I tried quitting more times than are humanly possible to count uh, and uh, never could. And every single time I would cry and pray and beg God to stop me. And he never did. And I grew uh, a deeper and deeper resentment for God and a deeper resentment for uh, against myself. So that at the point that I, I entered into the program, I mean, I, I hated myself so much. And I hated, I was so angry at God because I couldn't understand why he would make something like me. And what was the point of that? You know, like, why would you create something that's gonna cause nothing but harm to the people that, you know, that I love the most? And uh, I'm also a, a rageaholic. Uh, uh, in many houses that we've lived in, I put many a hole in the wall, uh, destroyed many a uh, piece of furniture, uh, lost my voice on multiple occasions from yelling at the top of my lungs. Uh, and it was directly connected to my lust, because what would happen is I would, I would binge on pornography. And then uh, I would just, my self-loathing would be so bad that I just wanted to set the whole world on fire uh, because I was just so angry at myself for having done it again one more time. Uh, So that's a a little, a brief taste of my, uh, my history as a sexaholic. Uh, There's, as one of the guys says here uh, in our group, he says, I've I've earned my chair in this room. Uh, Definitely earned my chair. Uh, I came in broken, completely broken, and I actually came in very angry. Uh, I was ready to fight. You know, there's a couple of guys that were here at my first meeting and they said that, you know, I, I came in and I thought that this was going to be an opportunity to get uh, some new weapons against uh, Satan. And, you know, like this was going to be a big war. And uh, I, actually, I, I you know, there was one period where I used to commute a lot and I used to drive uh about three hours every day, a hundred miles, uh, you know, 50 miles each way. And uh, I would just become so overcome by lust. And I had this uh, vision that there, like Satan was sitting in the, in the seat next to me. And I would, you know, I would just like, literally, you know, like grab him and slam his head into the dashboard and, you know, like start fighting with anybody who was driving by me would have thought I was insane, (laughs) which I was of course, you know, because I just was physically, physically wanted to do something different and I you know at one point I almost broke my own jaw because I punched myself so hard uh, because I just thought maybe like if I could just beat this out of me I couldn't beat it out of me I couldn't pray it out of me Uh, I couldn't uh, white knuckle my way out of it I couldn't uh, filter my way out of it Uh, I tried every kind of filter uh, every kind of way to restrict my access uh, to pornography And I'd always find another way I'd always find a way around or I'd find another way to do it. And, uh, so I, you know, there was just nothing I could do. So, uh, like I said, that's, uh, hopefully that, uh, the message is loud and clear that I am indeed a sexaholic. I am powerless over lust. My life is unmanageable. And, uh, you know, I create, I caused a lot of harm to a lot of people. Uh, so then, uh, if that's okay, then I'll switch to, uh, steps 8 and 9, I believe, is what uh, we're talking about today. And uh, for me, you know, I, I thought the best way for me to talk about 8 and 9, you know, when Sue first approached me on this topic, is, uh, you know, I have one story that I believe uh, encapsulates my whole acting out career. Uh, and it, and it, uh, it really highlights to me the power of Steps 8 and 9. And that is, uh, see, when I came into the program, uh, you know, I was willing to get honest, but I struggled with rigorous honesty. And, and I say that because there was one incident in my life for which I had so much shame that I had, could never repeat that story out loud to any human being. And I never did. I never told a single human being. I was in the program probably about a year and a half uh, and at the time, our, our group here was very small uh, in San Antonio. We had maybe about 10 members, and there was only like one or two guys that had any sobriety whatsoever. Uh, and there was one guy who had about like three, three and a half years of sobriety, and he was sponsoring all of us because really there wasn't anybody else. So we would have these uh, kind of step meetings like this, and, and I remember we were sitting and having a meeting, and it was a group of, you know, the group of about eight, 10 of us and we broke out into smaller groups to discuss. Uh, and the assignment was, you had to tell in your small group, and there were three of us in my little circle, you had to tell the story of the thing that you did in your life that you are most ashamed of. And I physically started shaking. I mean, I was vibrating. I was shaking so bad because I just could not, because I, I knew exactly what that was, but I couldn't bring it out. And, uh, you know, the, I made the other two guys go first. And I remember one guy shared about uh, trying to videotape his stepdaughter, uh, who was a older, uh, older at that point. And then uh, the other one shared about the time that, you know, when he was young, he kissed his brother. And, uh, you know, that, that, that was the thing. he was. And I kept thinking, man, when these guys hear what I'm about to say, they're going to kick me out of this group. And then it came to my turn, and I shared that when I was 14 years old, I fondled a nine-year-old girl uh, that I was asked to take care of. So our neighbors uh, left me in charge of, uh, you know, I was 14 and they had a 10-year-old boy, a nine-year-old girl, and two smaller uh, sons that I think were five and six at the time. And they asked me to babysit for them uh, because the husband and wife were going out to dinner. And uh, I went and I babysat with them. Uh, I took a rated R movie with me. Uh, I, I think I took a porn magazine with me as well, because I thought after the other three were asleep, me and the 10 year old could look at some of this stuff. Uh, but somewhere along the way I accident, I, um, uh, you know, I had the opportunity and it, I just couldn't stop myself and actually touched, uh, the the nine-year-old girl inappropriately. And the next day or the day after that, by the end of the week, they were gone. They moved out. Uh, so the family left. I mean, they, I, 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 I want to say it was the next day, like I said, or the day after that, that there was a U-Haul in front of their house, and they were loading up, and they left. And I had so much shame for that, so much shame. Like, I thought, that is the most evil thing that I have ever done. And I used to sit and, and you know, go on these future trips where I would imagine the, the devastation that I had done to that poor girl uh and and what impact that, that would have on her life going forward and you know I mean just all this stuff I would just have all these crazy thoughts and like I said I never I never voiced that story out loud in my whole life never it never came out in out of my lips. Um so when I said it that day in front of the other two guys uh they just kind of looked at me like oh okay and I thought maybe they didn't understand what I said or maybe because I didn't give any details They, you know, they're thinking, oh, how bad could it be, you know? Uh, And so I still, after that, uh, I believe that it was that one incident that took, prevented me from doing step one. It took me a year to do my step one sexual inventory. Because every time I would sit down to do it, I would imagine that I would have to write that line in there of that event. And I just, I, it, like I said, it was extremely painful. Uh, It was... Uh, I had such a strong resentment against myself for it, that it took me a year to do my step four inventory the first time. Uh, you know, and I sat down to do my, my resentments and my fears because I knew I would ha- again have to face that one event. Uh, and I believe that it drove 90% of my acting out was driven by that one, by that one incident. Um, cause I just had so much shame about it. And then I got to step eight. And, you know, again, it took me forever. I want to say it took another year for me to just write the list of the people because I didn't want to write that girl on, the, on my piece of paper. I just did not want to write that. I did not want to face that fear. I just had so much fear about that and so much shame. But I did. And then with the, with the support of a loving sponsor and, uh, you know, in the meantime, you know, I think I, I, I'm trying to remember how old I was when I, about that point. So I would say I was maybe in my late thirties, maybe 38, 39. Uh, so maybe about eight, nine years ago, 10 years ago. And, uh, you know, I, I'm trying to remember exactly how, how long ago it was, but, um, from the time, you know, for the previous, I think from the point I joined the program, I started looking for that girl. Couldn't remember her name. Could, you know, I, I, I just remembered the brother, the 10 year old brother I remembered his name and, uh, and the address that they lived in. And I just kept looking and looking and looking and looking and searching the internet. And incidentally, it was just kind of very, very interesting that when I got to step eight and I really started praying to God to, you know, to free me of this shame and free me of this, uh, this incident that I found that person, I found the girl online and, uh, you know, I found that she had a blog uh, that, you know, she was sharing about her family and her kids and her husband and her faith and, uh, you know, just seemed to be doing really well. Uh, and she was also sharing about how she had multiple sclerosis. And uh, I, I just went crazy. Absolutely bonkers insane. I mean, Insane. Uh, to the point that uh, I came up with about three different scenarios in which I would make amends to this girl. Uh, it was a woman at this point, right? So th- it's like, how would I make amends to this woman that I had hurt so bad for the one incident that I had the most amount of shame for? And uh, <clears throat> I, I went so crazy. <laughs> I came, like I said, I came up with all these weird scenarios. And one of the, like, couple of scenarios, I was going to talk to some of the guys in the program or one of the girls in the program, there's one of the women that was in the program and see if they would be willing to contact this woman, mention my name and see what the reaction is and then see if they could like schedule an amends meeting for me with this person if the person was willing uh, to talk to me. Uh, and the crazier I got, because my scheme started getting really crazy. Like I, I started, I literally went insane. Uh, and I couldn't sleep. And for like a week or two, I was just going nuts and, you know, typical addict behavior. I was obsessing like crazy. And, uh, so my, you know, my sponsor at the time was actually my, you know, he had maybe one year sobriety and, uh, the other, the, his sponsor was the guy that originally, you know, we'd all been working with. So I think at this point he had like four years. These guys said, you know, we have no idea what to do with you. You've gone completely crazy. We don't know how to deal with you. So we're taking you to like our AA sponsor. So they took me to a guy in AA who at the time had 50 something years of sobriety in AA. And I had an appointment with him and I went and I sat down and I'm thinking to myself, this guy's not a sexaholic. So I can be as graphic as I want because, you know, I don't have to worry about it affecting his sobriety. And I sat down. I told him in graphic detail exactly what uh, what happened in that incident, and then I told him how I found this woman, and how I was, you know, like had I described a couple of the schemes that I was coming up to make amends. And when I was done, I mean, this guy was just uh, just a wonderful, amazing human being. And he looked at me and he smiled and he said, "Okay, a couple of things." He said, first of all, uh, if I had a nickel." for every time someone sat in that chair and he pointed to the chair I was sitting in, and he said, "He sat in that chair and told me that story and thought it was the first time I was hearing it, I would be a very, very wealthy man. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I was like, what? He said, you know, uh, and he said, another thing is that you are definitely an addict because only an addict would get so obsessive about anything You know, so you have like, if you weren't an addict, you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't be going crazy like this. And then he told me something that I believe is the essence of steps eight and nine. And this is the reason why I share the story every time I talk about eight and nine. He said to me, he said, you know, you have a problem with forgiveness. And I looked at him and I said, what? And he said, you have a problem with forgiveness. And until you can comprehend forgiveness until you can, like, I forgot how he put it, but he said something like, until you can receive forgiveness, maybe he said, uh, you will never comprehend amends. You have no clarity with amends until you have reached forgiveness. There's no, the two are like, you know, inseparable. You have to have forgiveness in order to be able to see the amends. And he gave me a little article that he had written. It was a couple of pages long and, and forgiveness. And he said, what, what happens if you don't make amends to this person right away? I said, well, on her blog, she said she was moving and she was going out into the country and she thought she may, she wasn't sure if she would have internet access again. And, you know, it might be a couple of years till she's uh, reachable. He said, okay, well, it sounds like God doesn't really want you to make amends right now. And he may not want you to make amends ever. You can't do it until you work on this forgiveness thing. So he said, my recommendation to you is put it on hold for at least a couple of weeks, if not longer, and work on forgiveness. And then you can come back and look at, uh, and look at what the amends should be. So I went back and I did exactly that. I spent probably about six months, six months of just some really intense work on forgiving myself, and uh, a lot of prayer, and meditation, a lot of letters to God, uh, you know, a lot of work with my sponsor, you know, just really trying to get to a point where I could forgive myself. And you know what? Since then, uh, you know, now looking back on it all, I realize that what I really was dealing with was an inability to accept step one, because to me, step one, the essence of step one is that you know, that my, that I am powerless over lust. And if I'm powerless, then part of what I'm saying is that everything that lust made me do, I did not do because I'm an evil person. You know, I didn't do it because I am the devil, which I believed. I actually literally believed that I was Satan incarnate, that I was the devil. When I was a child, I watched the movie, The Omen. And I literally thought that movie was made based on me. You know, I thought I was the devil. And, uh, you know, I remember I used to get in fights with my family because they would say something like, you know, don't you want to go to heaven? And I used to just start screaming and cussing like I like literally had been possessed. And I say, you know, there is no heaven for me. I'll never there, there isn't no, there is no there is no forgiveness for me. And they always would ask me, like, why? And that, of course, I'm not going to tell them about the one story about the girl that I fondled. Uh, but that was the story in my head that kept saying that you, because of what you did, you will never, ever be forgiven. Uh, And so um, we, you know, we, uh, we reached a, you know, it's like, I kind of, I reached a point after about six months of forgiveness work, I reached a point where I truly felt forgiven. I felt that like what happened with that girl was not my fault. It wasn't because I was evil. It wasn't because I was immoral. It wasn't because I was depraved and and uh, sinister. It was uh, it was because I, you know, because I'm a sexaholic, and that I am powerless over lust. And although you know I'm responsible for the consequences of that, and I'm responsible for the harm that I'm done, I'm not guilty for that, and I don't have to keep punishing myself over and over and over again for a crime, for a sin that I was powerless to commit. And when the moment I reached that true sense of self-forgiveness, uh, I, you know, when I got to that point, the, it just became so clear to me what amends I needed to make to her. And the amends was, I just needed to leave her the heck alone because I had already done the damage you know it's like why to drag up the past and put her through that suffering and if God had something else in the story, then we would cross that bridge when it came so uh, I think I have about six seven minutes left, and so I'll, you know I'll tell you the rest of the story because there is more to the story so fast forward about another month or two and You know, I I was praying more about, is there any other amends that I need to make to this woman? And as I mentioned on her blog, she talked a lot about multiple sclerosis and about how she'd been diagnosed with MS and was really struggling with that disease. And it was causing her a lot of pain and suffering. And I thought, you know, I'm going to make a donation to MS research. So I started looking up, you know, like some, you know, what organization to donate to. And there's like tons of them like big names, you know, and, and, and there's three really big ones and I got really confused. So I said, you know, I'm going to ask her which one she thinks is the best to donate to. So she had this form on her website that you could fill out and it would send a a request or a question in. Right. So I filled out the form and I sent it in and, you know, (laughs) this tells you how dumb I am. Because I, I didn't realize that I used my actual email address, which has my full name in it. And uh, so I sent the email. And I very, by the next day, I got an email back. And I I still remember where I was standing and what happened when I got the email back. I was standing in my bedroom right by the door. I just walked into my bedroom, and I was looking at my phone. And I walked in, I saw the email response. And I just started shaking and crying. And my wife walked in. She said, what happened? And so I told her, but I, but I sat there and the email said, uh, yes, as a matter of fact, I do have some recommendations about uh, places that you can donate for MS. Uh, the one that I find the most useful is such and such organization. And I don't remember which one it is. I can look it up if anybody's interested. But, uh, and then she said, but, but if you're not in a hurry to donate, I'm actually personally going to be collecting money for a procedure that I'm going to be undergoing, which is an experimental procedure in Russia. And if you'd be willing to donate directly for that, that would be really helpful. And finally, I wanted to ask you if you ever lived in such and such town, because I once had a neighbor by your name. And of course, like I said, I mean, I'm shaking and I'm sweating and I'm just like, oh my God, what do I do? And my wife said, what are you going to do? I said, well, I guess I'll write her back and say, yes, it's me. And I wrote back and I said, yes, that was me. Cause I didn't realize like I, said, I didn't realize that I'd use my email address and that she would pick up on that. Uh, Cause I'm thinking I'm on, I'm being all stealth, <laughs> you know, that I'm going to put this question in and she's going to have no idea uh, who it's me. And I wrote back and I said, yes, that was me. I was your neighbor. And she wrote back to me and she said, I want to let you know that I have no malice in my heart for you. And I have prayed for you many times over the years. And I wish you only the best. And I, you know, I wrote back, and I just—I think I said something along the same lines of, you know, I have—I have prayed many times for this opportunity to just admit to you that what I did was wrong, and that, uh, you know, and how bad I feel about what happened. Uh, And I, for the first time since I was fourteen, felt free. I finally felt. Free, and um, you know that. So there, you know, there's several lessons in that. Uh, And I'll just summarize with this in the last couple of minutes that I have. uh, Just summarize some of the lessons. Uh, One, you know, I talked a lot about the forgiveness piece. Uh, I do feel very strongly in the forgiveness part of it. Uh, But I would actually go a step back, which is. Uh, something I learned from another another sponsor who helped me through the steps uh, another time that I did it, which is that it is very important to me in my experience for the list of who I need to make amends to, to not come from me. Uh, whenever I do either step four, step nine, anytime I make a list now, I spend at least five, 10, 15, 20, 30 minutes in in prayer and meditation asking God to provide me with the list because I don't trust my own brain. My brain will control, manipulate, fear. I mean, just all kinds of weird stuff happens. So what I do is I just sit quietly and I ask for the list. And when the list comes, I write it down. And then I don't question it because the last time I did that, there were names on the list. I'm like, what? I didn't hurt that person. And I called and I made amends. And it was like the most amazing thing ever. You know, like, and I I didn't, that wasn't even my plan. Uh, So that's number one is the list has to come from God. Two, I have to forgive not only that person. And if you look in the white book, uh, you know, it talks about step eight and a half. And I'm sure you guys have looked at that or you've you've, uh, uh, reviewed that, uh, you know, which is on page um, 125, where it talks about forgiveness. There's a whole section devoted to it. Uh, But a lot of the focus of it is on forgiving the person that I'm trying to make amends to. Uh, But I would add to that, uh, that, you know, for me, I need to not only forgive the person I'm making amends to, but I need to forgive myself for the harm that I've done. Uh, Which brings me to number three, which is, you know, making amends, it to me is not about I'm making amends to every single person that I have some sort of guilt about. Uh, For me, making amends is about me admitting that I'm wrong to someone I have harmed and the key word being harmed. Uh, but that really becomes clear when I, admit, when I ask God for the list. If he provides me with the list, then I don't have to question if there's harm involved or not. And then the final thing, which is to me, the real kicker when you get to step nine, which is that all I can do is pray for the willingness to make the amends. And when I receive that willingness uh, to make some effort in that direction. But how and when the amends happen is none of my business. And I can, if, you know, if we had another six hours, I would tell you numerous stories of my amends and how, you know, that people, like, for example, the father and brother of this this woman that I, I discussed, I have tried so hard to reach out to them. I found them, I've contacted them, I've tried to reach out to them to make amends but I cannot get a hold of them. I just can't. And for whatever reason, I've, I believe God is just not ready for me to make amends to them. And I may never make amends to them. Uh, you know, so it, but then there's all these other cases where there was one friend of mine that I, I'll just give you this brief example, who I, I swore I would never speak to him again. And I told him never to call me again. And when I was working on step eight, he was like the next one on my list after this, this girl. And one day he just called me out of the blue. He said, I have no idea why I'm calling you. I just felt like I really needed to call you. And I said, wow, uh, I know why you called me because I need to admit how wrongly I treated you uh, and how I abused you. So, you know, I guess, like I said, I want to end on that, which is that the how and why of the amends, the ability to even make the amends, to orchestrate that should not be in my control. Because every time I've tried, it's just a disaster. If I leave it to God, I just bring the willingness, and then he orchestrates it. I mean, it's just, like I said, I could tell you numerous stories of where he worked it out that so-and-so showed up, or I finally got a hold of so-and-so's number, finally found this person. You know, it's like things that I, I just couldn't do before. So anyway, I believe that's the end of my 25 minutes. Uh, I will stop there. Thanks for letting me share. Again, my name is Amjit, and I am still a sexaholic. Nothing has changed in the last 25 minutes.
0: I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.com